Hi, Proop Kittens. It's me, your old pal, Greg Proops, the Proop Dog. This is a very special episode of the Proopcast as it's a one-on-one interview with filmmaker Alexander Pelosi. She's made a new documentary about America this year called American Selfie, One Nation Shoots Itself. It's available on Showtime right now, and it's a fascinating look at what's gone on the last year. Uh, it started before, she started shooting before uh, the uh, COVID and carried on all the way through, and it chronicles a good deal of what's happened on the streets in this country. So I hope you enjoy it. It's only about 25, 30 minutes long. Um, she's funny and engaging and cynical. And yes, she is Nancy Pelosi's youngest daughter. Cheers. And be sure to vote. And if you do vote, vote for Joe Biden. If you vote for Trump, I don't want to hear from you. Let's talk about the picture. Um, first of all, I thought the picture was beautifully put together and well-realized, very thoughtful and uh, and extraordinarily moving. I have... I want to ask you a couple of questions. When you started out, were you going making a different picture than the one you ended up making? I started out with the intention of making a time capsule, an artifact of 2020. So I didn't know what I was going to get. The whole idea was to capture America in an election year. And let's face it. Election years are never our best moments. Mm-mm. You know, that's not that's not our place itself. So I knew it was going to get ugly. I mean, I couldn't have anticipated a global, you know, shutdown, the virus, the, you know, race riots in the streets. I mean, obviously all of that stuff. I couldn't have anticipated my own National Guard shooting at me with tear gas and rubber bullets. You know, that's something that only happens in third world countries like Venezuela, you never expect to see that in your own country. I mean, there are lots of things I couldn't have anticipated in this film, but, you know, it's America, 2020, that's how we look. Spoiler alert, not so good. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, Speaking to that fact uh, where you were tear gassed, I was freaking out for you while watching the film because I felt like you were in danger. How in danger did you feel in some of those uh, police actions? Let me tell you something. I'm an old lady. I've been around a very long time. I, for a decade, I was a network news producer. And then I spent two decades as a documentary filmmaker. So I've been around. This is not my first rodeo. Mm. And I never thought in my lifetime that I would see the military shooting at innocent civilians in this time in America before the curfew. I mean, that's one of those things that's shocking. Psychologically, I'm more scarred than physically. I mean, when I saw African-Americans getting the shit beat out of them, no apparent reason, but just that, you know, the president had to have a selfie in front of the church on that fateful June day. It's still shocking to me. I I still wake up sometimes in the middle of the night, like, wow, is is this my America? I mean, is this what America has become? Like, this is not America. And I'm like, oh, yeah, actually it is. So it's st- that's still so for me. I would say emotionally and psychologically, it's more um, traumatizing to spend time in real America right now than it is, you know, physically challenging. Understood. Uh, you got you captured a bunch of very specific moments: um, the Tulsa rally, uh, New York in March, uh, DC, the day of the terrible um, concussion bombs, and everything. Uh, Here's a question that maybe is not as pertinent as it might be, but it was something I couldn't quit thinking about while I was watching it. How were you able to travel around during the pandemic? Did you drive around? Did you fly around? 
because you covered so much ground. Yeah, I live on the edge, baby. I yeah, I, I film everything myself with the handheld camera. Mm-hmm. So all all I have to do is just go to the airport. So it's not hard for me to get around. If you don't have a, like you know a big camera crew in tow, it's easy to do what I do. You just go to the airport. And the whole idea of my sort of filmmaking philosophy is like I just go. So if I see something happening, I like to go, I, I go there. So that you know, I tried to sort of iconic events in America in the past year. Like I went to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And the reason I went to the Super Bowl was because the San Francisco 49ers were in the Super Bowl. And I thought, well, considering how they treated Colin Kaepernick, this is an interesting moment for America to confront. You know, the way there, is his name ever going to come up? I don't know. Let's go. Let's find out. Now, that wasn't – that you could have anticipated. I could have told you in December I was going to go to the Super Bowl. And then on other days, for example, you know, George Floyd – you know, got murdered and I had to get on the next flight. That, you know, that I couldn't have anticipated, but I was ready. I was ready. And you know, another thing is all, all those op- reopen rallies. You know, I went to three reopen rallies. And that was when, you know, I'm from New York City where black and brown people were dying during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But then I'd go to these all white reopen rallies where, you know, angry white men were complaining that, you know, they couldn't go to church. So, that, you know, to Sacramento, that was a big one. Yeah. Um, where they had big, like, you know, posters of Gavin Newsom dressed up as Hitler, you know, with the fascist mustache and everything. Mm-hmm. That was that was really good. Um, but, yeah, so I basically just, uh, I just go. That's my whole thing. That's my shtick. I go. Well, it's very effective because, like I said, you were able to cover so much ground. Uh, one thing that I really um, thought was fantastic about the picture was your emphasis on hunger inequality, um, the homeless, you gave the homeless voice in it. You also went to, um, the abortion rally, uh, the women's rights rally, which I really appreciated is this at the same time, of course, you covered, uh, like you say, the reopening protests and you certainly gave, uh, a, a lot of white Americans, you know, time in front of the camera is, is everything is a conscious choice as a documentarian, but you say you just go. So tell me a little bit about why you emphasize the homeless so much and hunger? Well, first of all, when I ask a little teenage girl of mine at the food bank, how does America look to you in 2020? And she says, hungry. Mm-hmm. I mean, how heartbreaking is that? So uh, I think that we all have to remember that in a week from now when this election is over, America's still going to be hungry. You know, we may stop having Trump rallies, but America's still going to be hungry and unemployed. And they're really serious social ills that you know, need to be addressed that are not going to go away. Some of these things will go away. You know, like the abortion thing, well, it looks like the way they ran that Supreme Court justice in last night, it looks like that's going to go away too. If you want to have an abortion, it looks like that's probably going to go away. But it, it just seems like there are bigger picture problems, like hungry people in this country is a lot more real to me than let's say, um, well, I was going to say the Supreme Court, but that seems like a big one now. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to rank, you know, the biggest problem. And it seems like just having to go to a drag queen show and oh my, you know, that even in America, we still have that. So, I mean, people, yeah, it's, it's, it's rough out there. I, I agree. Uh, I'm from San Francisco as well. And um, 
So oh, I know. The issue has always been at the very front there. And uh, now I live in Southern California. And, of course, it's astonishing down here. Um, I, you know, you, you made, you've made over a dozen documentaries and you've covered all these topics. Is it really just a function of the mainstream media that they absolutely don't see any profit or growth to be had out of covering the story of hunger? Or is Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, what sells is the divide. Yeah. And our divisions are social media is, I mean, those guys are billionaires, right? So social media is just destroying our democracy so that some guys, you know, they're like war profiteers. And everyone's sitting at home fighting on their iPhones and, you know, some few people are getting very well for that. So that is always, you know, that's a headline, you know, so people like that. And then also cable news. Just, you know, the fight is what keeps them. They were dying before Trump came along. I mean, if you think about it, they're enablers, the Trump presidency, you know, and regardless of who you're going to vote for, you still shouldn't be able to, I feel like that the mainstream media in this country has blood on their hands for enabling by saying like, okay, look, the president says invasion, invasion, invasion. You put that on cable and then mentally ill man by the gun walks into a I'm sorry, you're breaking up quite a lot here. Because the Latinos are invading this country. Well, pretty simple. Yes. Um, I, I, All I'm trying to do is connect the dots for people. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it's it's all you can do, I think, as a documentarian, that people are so misinformed and then they're in their own bubble of information and they kind of refuse to hear other information. And I think this is where part of what's happening running up to this election is reality has crashed into um, 45's bubble. And uh, what do you do when the two alternate realities, when the alternate reality runs into real reality? Um, and that's where we're, I think, having to play right now. And I think the, the media the last week is pushing back a little, but they've been, I don't know, it's been a lot of stenography, in my opinion, over the last four years. Enabling. I call it enabling because mm. they are responsible for handing the microphone to the craziest guy in the room and not fact-checking it, just yeah. letting him get away with saying whatever he says without doing their due diligence of, you know, this is a fact and this is not. You now all politicians, you know, manipulate truths to their advantage, but not just making shit out pulling shit out of your ass. You know, that's just like this new world where there's no such thing as a truth. You know, we used to disagree on issues. I could say, I'm pro-choice, and you could say, I'm pro-life, and we could disagree, and we could even agree to disagree. Now, we fight over facts, you know, yeah. like, like climate change. The, we can't even agree to a set of facts. And where I live, if you walk outside my door, there's a big clock counting down how many days, hours, minutes, and seconds are left to life on planet Earth, because the UN said there will be seven good years left on mm-hmm. planet Earth. And so there's a clock counting it down. I see it every day. And so it reminds me that, you know, you can live in your own bubble with your own reality and just 
digest whatever kind of fictions you want, but in the end, there are only eight good years left on this planet. Seven, actually. But um, but in eight years, you're going to look back and say, uh, how, where did it go so wrong? And I would say that the mainstream media, the cable news media and the social media uh, are, are really... They have blood on their hands. I would agree with that. There doesn't seem to be a way to take it back at this point. Everybody's very addicted to social media, and um, it, it doesn't appear to be going away. And, of course, now that we're all hunkering down, it's sometimes the only community you have is, you know, and, of course, here in the group I'm run with is, a, you know, sharing, caring, annoying, you know, libtards. I tell, you know, the kids of today that I talk to, I'm like, dude, I'd rather you buy a gun than an iPhone because a gun, you make the decision if you're going to pull the trigger. But an iPhone, someone else, an algorithm, big tech, is just sending little bullets to shoot at your brain to make you happy or sad or depressed or anxious. And so, in a way, these iPhones are much more toxic to your mental health than, you know, than a gun to your health than a gun, you know? I, I see your point. And, and impossible to put down, uh, considering we're all in containment now. And, you know, I can't really go out and see my friends or do my job, and a lot of people can't. So we're on our phones way more than we even were, which was too much. I wanted to talk about two things, uh, and then I'll let you live your life. Um, there was two conversations you had in the movie, and one... Uh, was with a guy who said to you, white America understands everything about what they've done and what we've created. And I thought that was an, an awesome point. It's something that gets skated over all the time. Um, and then the other one was a gentleman said to you that he was more afraid of the cops than he was of COVID. And they were both um, black men. Do you think that in light of uh, everything that's happened and the, the giant awakening since uh, May, that people are changing their minds and starting to see that white supremacy is a real thing? Absolutely. But now I feel like I'm such the dark cloud, it's my job to insert some toxic positivity into this conversation. Because this is the year that white America woke up and saw things that they, that, you know, we were allowed to pretend it didn't exist, you know, all the, when we talk about the racial disparity in this country, we were allowed to ignore it and we just pretended it didn't exist. And so the only thing that should give you hope now is that, you know, we have the first woman of color on the ticket to be the vice president of the United States. I mean, it took a pandemic, it took a race riot in the streets, it took, I mean, you have to think about what it took to get here. And I think that is something that should, in the arc of history, make you feel better about yourself today. Because you say, you know what? We could have a female vice president that's of, of color. And we never could have had that in this country. If it weren't for George Floyd, Kamala Harris never could have been vice president. Now, she's a perfectly woman and she's a wonderful, all this. That's not my point. My point is there's so much, you know, the problem is in America, we vote in secret. Nobody tells you the truth. No one tells the pollsters the truth. I mean, Maybe you do because you have a clean conscience, but I don't trust Americans alone in a booth at a ballot when it comes to a woman of color. 
But this is the year where a lot of people are excited about the prospect of voting for a woman of color. But it took a, it took a pandemic and it took race riots in the street and a murder on you know live on Instagram or whatever you know posts on the internet for us to get to this place. Yeah, it did. It took a, a, basically a slow motion lynching uh, for white people to understand uh, that the system is not in, intact and, and so scaled against everybody who's not a rich white person. Well, I know you like to be a dark cloud, but do you have any uh, any last thoughts about... Uh, I mean, I think the film accomplishes so much because, as you say, connecting the dots, it's illustrative and uh, to shine a light on something is the most important thing you can do because then, you know, I have conversations with my comedian friends and Will Durst is an old friend of mine and I once said to him, do you think that you can change minds as a comedian? He said, no, but you can make people think about things that they might not have thought about. So um, your picture, I think, does that. Is there another picture that you're thinking about after this one? Or, I'm not phrasing this very well, what would be the next thing you would talk about as opposed to just chronicling a year? Well, I think it's very clear that everybody in their liberal bubbles right now is holding their breath until the day after the election. Yeah. They think they're going to wake up and this national nightmare is going to be over. And we're all going to go back to Kumbaya, happy place, and Europe's going to love us again, and we're all going to get on a plane and go to Paris and be loved. Well, we were never loved in Paris. Who are we kidding? Let's call it Amsterdam. But the truth is, I'm more worried about what's going to happen after the election. And I'm not talking about, you know, rioting in the streets, which will happen either way. Think about it. You know, if Biden wins, half of America is going to be heartbroken and, you know, vice versa. So I'm more worried about the hungry kids that aren't getting fed Mm -hmm. and that are going to be hungry. When the day in January that Joe Biden takes the oath of office, there's still going to be hungry people in America that day. We like to make it seem as if, you know, one election can fix the past hundred years of all the, you know, mistakes that have been made and all of the choices that have been made to screw over, you know, poor people, people of color, you know, all that. I could go down the list. But I'm worried more about how America looks, even if the president is the president that you want it to be. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. And I think you're absolutely right. The problems don't magically go away. But this presidency's proved that nothing magically happens and that there has to be some sort of change. Um, and and we have to have some kind of hope. I, I agree with you. After the election is going to be very messy. Um, but I, especially I, like especially like looking at the look at the homeless in San Francisco. That hmm. epidemic. Like how has how. How could it be that one of the most beautiful countries, uh, beautiful cities in our country could end up like that? And, you know, okay, so I live in Manhattan, and you know the narrative of New York is dead. Well, New York's not dead, but fine, for the sake of this conversation, there are a lot more homeless people, there are a lot more mentally ill people in the streets, and it's going to take a lot to turn that around. It's not like we're just going to flip the switch when Joe Biden gets sworn in and we're all going to live happily ever after. It's going to take a lot to repair the damage it was done to this country in the last four years. So I'm not as, you know, here we go back to the dark cloud. I apologize. 
But um, <laughs> just don't think that if you have some great, you know, election outcome that all your problems are going to go away. You can't exhale. Oh, no. I think it's time for even more uh, democracy after that. And we have to push harder. Well, listen, I really want to thank you for all your time, uh, Ms. Pelosi. And congratulations oh, on the I, picture. All the time in the world for you. Well, that's very sweet of you. Uh, you make me laugh. Well, you're very kind. Uh, you know, for my own selfish point of view, uh, I've been a traveling ham for 100 years. And I, all I've done is gone around the world for the last 30 years. And this has really clipped my wings, and um, I'm not happy about it. I know you were supposed to be in Brooklyn. You were supposed to be in Brooklyn in October. Yeah, that well, well, you remember, well remembered that that one got canned. Uh, I was supposed to be there in March, and then again yeah. in October, and uh, touring the country with Who's Line, and doing stand up and the podcast everywhere in London, and whatnot. And uh, you know, for me, this is a, a, a I, I'm going to survive, but. I don't see going back on the road for, I don't know, till 2022, maybe. And that's if the, you know, oh, wow. that's if the right team wins. I mean, how are we supposed to uh, play, you know, theaters with 1500 people in them with no masks on? I, I just don't see it for a long time. This is oh, a. Well, Trump, Trump said at the debate, we're going to have a vaccine in a couple of weeks. You'll be fine. Oh, and also I've, I, his healthcare plan. I have it over here in the corner. Um, in fact, I'm sitting on it as we speak, and it's just rich with facts. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would like to believe that um, we could do better than the having a, a grotesque parody of the human uh, as the fakely installed leader. But, you know, we shall see what we shall see. I, I'm fairly hopeful because I think that the one thing the mainstream media cannot bring itself to do, and as you say, cable news, is... Um, run the narrative that this is going to be a landslide and that people really hate Trump, that generally people hate him. Yes, there's always the base, the, the vaunted base that's in a diner in Ohio, but people are sick of it and kind of want their lives back. And the media hates that narrative because it means that everybody won't be breathlessly watching every two seconds and clicking on every crappy article. Exactly. I mean, I think the truth is That's exactly it. this might be a complete landslide. I don't know if it'll be a gold watery and, you know, Mondalian landslide, but uh, you'd have to convince me that he's loved. And, you know, and yes, I'm counting my redneck relatives, but um, I don't know. It, this isn't Hillary. The misogyny and the, the buildup of hatred toward her for 30 years by the Murdoch, and the, uh, you know, that bubble doesn't exist for for this candidate. He nobody hates Joe Biden, as far as I can see, other than the QAnon people or whatever. But you know what? You know what I do like about the whole thing about the whole Joe Biden thing. That you know, so uh, you know, I was indoctrinated into the Democratic Party at a very early age. And four years before an election, my mother would always preach this candidate, insert the name, Dukakis, John Kerry. This is going to be the savior of Western civilization. And now. This is the first election where everyone's just like, okay, look, I know he's old. I know he's a little lost. Just hold your nose and just stomach it, and we'll get through this. I mean, we we couldn't have come up with a worse candidate at this moment in time. But that's okay. It's okay. We'll take him. We'll take anything we can, right, just to get rid of Trump. We'll take anything we can get. So it's just funny to me that it's like, okay, just – Okay, we got. We can do this, but no one's giving the speech about how, like, oh my God, he's our salvation. He's the greatest, 
you know, I, I don't know. I find that kind of funny now that people are like, yeah, I, I guess I'll go for it. Like, you know, I live in a party world. So I was like, I mean, I guess I'll, I guess, I guess I'll go stand in line and vote for him. But okay, if I have to. But no one's like, oh my God, I want to go stand in line for eight hours. The lines are insane in my neighborhood. They're insane. The early voting lines are like the only hope I have for humanity. Right, there's a, there's a problem that needs to, yeah, yeah. Well, I would, I've never voted for him in my life. I mean, I, I didn't vote for him when he ran for president twice. Um, I was always a Kamala, Kamala person this time around. And of course, I loved Hillary beyond all measure. Uh, but yeah, no, we're looking at saving humanity here. The voting lines in New York, that's fairly scandalous that New York has never sorted that out. I mean, California, they gave us our ballots a month ago and we already voted, you know? Yeah, but I like it because Trump said that New York was a ghost town, and then you see these huge yeah. lines. <laughs> yeah, that's some ghost town. Yeah. People dancing yeah. in the streets yeah. on their way to the polls and whatnot. And you know how they're voting. Yeah, anyone who's dancing is not um, voting for 45, unless yeah. they're doing a goose step kind of. Nobody's waiting in line to vote for him. Oh, no. That's one of the things we have in our favor. Um, I just, uh, I look forward to, uh, so say we win and Biden gets in, um, the media holding him to everything he says and being inconceivably scrupulous while they've let this person run wild and no one has ever asked him straight up to his face, why did you do this? Why did you let this go out of control? Why did you not look after the country? Are you a Russian traitor? Uh, I mean, that question has just never been posed. <laughs> and it's clear that he is and that he's unhinged. He's, he's not capable of holding the office um, for a thousand reasons. But one, he's... He's mentally ill on top of uh, whatever drug addiction he's got going on with the white chunks flying out his nose every day. No one even mentions that. There's white chunks flying out his nose. Isn't that a story? <laughs> but I guarantee you, if Kamala Harris wears uh, uh, tennis shoes to a, an international event, everyone's going to have a complete fucking meltdown. <laughs> so, right. So yeah. And you, gotta, you have to think about, poor, you know, Donald Trump takes his family everywhere, right? you got to think about how sad it is for them, you know? Like, there's, you know, why haven't they had an intervention? Why haven't they stepped in and been like, okay, listen, dad, we, you know, enough's enough here. You're like losing your mind live on television. Yeah. Come on. You know? They're probably just in it for the money, you know? Oh, no question. Well, I mean, look at look at who he's surrounded with. That, the Munsters there with the, the Scambino crime family. His daughter, his son-in-law, they're all just... Uh, uh, you know, grifters. Also, I think they face the veil, very real possibility that there's legal ramifications to all the criming and uh, that keeping hold is the only way they're going to avoid them. Yeah. Wow, you ended up being a dark cloud. <laughs> Maybe it's you and you rubbed off on me. It's your, it's your innate pessimism that lifts you as, as an artist. Yeah. Your, your, yeah. your superpower is bumming it's, it. It's an art. You know, it's a skill. <laughs> I like to make people sad. That's what I do best. Right? And I'm supposed to make people happy. And I'm... (laughs) Listen, thanks very much. I really do appreciate it. My mission is accomplished. Yeah. You've left me uh, lying in a pile of my own despair. I'll come see you when you're... Next time you come to New York, I'll see you when you come to New York. Yes, please. Please, please. I'll come see me when we're at the Bell House and come backstage and say hi, please. We'll have a drink. Okay, I promise I will. I promise I will. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay.
Sometimes it's a laugh. Wait, I want to say one thing that has nothing to do with it. So I like to sit, you know, like during COVID, whatever. I like to go sit in Washington Square Park and watch these amateur comedians. They're like terrible, terrible. But they're practicing over in the park, you know, trying to get their act together. They're not going to play, you know, even if the clubs were open, they're not going to. But this is what I do for entertainment. I go and I watch them because it so lifts me up. I told him a dark cloud. I love to watch these kids try because there's something so, like, they still have hope, you know. They're obviously, you know, they have a stability because they're comedians but there's something about that they heckle me and i'm like dude i'm the only one that showed up to listen to you i'm a, the only human you have as an audience so stop heckling me <laughs> like, you look like someone's mom I'm like, thanks i am someone's mom okay that's you know but anyway i i love sitting in the park so now i have to take you to sit in the park with me to listen to some bad comedy although i did hear one really funny joke today the guy goes like this he goes there's a black kid who is i think the funniest of a lot he goes like this he goes Hey, you want to know how to know if a white person's been to a Black Lives Matter march? How? Oh, they'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That is a giddy. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I like that. That That's funny. They laugh out loud. Well, there's something... The the desperation of comedy is part of what makes it so sincere. And when people are first starting and they're not funny, it's just a real effort of will to listen. And I always say to... You know, journalists always don't understand anything, and they always ask, like, are you nervous when you get on stage? I'm like, no, I'm not fucking nervous. I've been doing this for 30, 40 years. I'm confident. It's the only place I feel comfortable. You're misunderstanding the whole situation. And then I'll say, it, really, it's on the audience. The audience is way more uncomfortable if you're a terrible comic than the comic is. <laughs> you know, we, we, the audience is like, oh, God, let this be over. They really do want you to win, you know. They don't want you to fail. They want you to be funny. They want you to get up and tell jokes one after the next. It, uh, and But I love the sweaty desperation of when you're first starting because you think people say like, oh my God, what if I fail? And it's like, um, is there another way to learn? You know, well, no matter what. I think I'm going to invite, I think I'm going to invite the comics. Next time you're in New York, 2022, next time you're in New York, I'm going to buy tickets for all the pork wannabe comics. <laughs> Take them as my entourage. That'll be my gift to them. Yeah. All right. I look forward to that. Okay, good. I okay, look forward John. to seeing you then. All right. Be safe. Thank you. Thanks okay, a lot. Thank it was great talking to you. Cheers. Thank you. Right back at you. Okay, bye. Bye, stay darling. Away from, stay, away from, stay away from Christine Pelosi. <laughs> She's dangerous. <laughs> I will. She may, get you to, she may get you to say something like, God, I love Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love Kamala enough, and it spills over to Joe. Fine. Good enough. (laughs) All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye.